Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. Today, I am so excited to introduce you to Gabe Zikerman. Am I pronouncing that correct? Close. It's Zikerman. Yeah. Zikerman. Okay. I tried too hard. The author no. and CEO of Onward, an anti-tech addiction startup. And, uh, you know, talking about evolving digital self, this is really a hot topic. So I'm so happy to have you here today to learn more about your work, your current work, and how that's evolved from where I met you in the gamification space. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So to just get us kicked off, for those that aren't familiar with your work, can you tell a little bit about sort of where you're coming from and, and where you're at now and... Yeah, so so for the better part of the last 10 years, um, I've been the chief exponent of a concept called gamification, which many people will, uh, you know, will have heard that term and many people won't. And it's basically about, you know, making things that are not games uh, as sticky as games. And sticky is a kind of a polite euphemism for addictive. And so over the course of this last 10 years, I've, I've written... Uh, um, you know, four books about gamification. I, I built um, a very successful consulting firm and worked with all the most of the, the world's biggest companies and governments on how to deploy this to help people be more engaged. And I had a moment of realization a couple of years ago, uh, maybe a little more now even, where I felt like people were no longer interacting with each other the way they used to. It was um, a moment in a restaurant where I was sitting there and I noticed like literally everybody was on their phone, like absolutely everybody. And I started to kind of wonder, given the fact that I have a family and friend experience with addiction, I began to really wonder whether or not this was, you know, comparable to that and whether things had gone too far. And so two years ago, together with my co-founder, Adam Stinger, I started a company, uh, we started a company called Onward, which is dedicated to um, helping people overcome their tech addictions. And it's a little meta because it's an app to help you put down your phone. Uh, but it's designed in a way that that uh, is really about getting you off your device and doing more of the things that you want to do. That's uh, so needed and such a great idea. And I think, you know, when you're looking at the digital self profiles, that addiction piece, I often talk about like digital addiction is the extreme side where you just you can't put it down. You, but it also comes with a regular addictive personality. And so there's a big, you know, it's a very strong urge. It's beyond sort of the urge to look at it for some people, and particularly in the gaming space, they go to the extreme of, you know, having to wear diapers so they don't have to leave their computer to be able to yeah. keep on playing, which is a, you know, it's quite extreme. Yeah. One of the, one of the things um, you mentioned something that's a little bit of a trigger for me in this conversation, which was addictive personality. And um, in my most recent TED talk, I argue that actually that is not a thing. Everybody has an addictive personality. And it's just about whether or not you, when and whether you encounter that thing that makes you feel compulsive. So, you know, when we only had drugs and alcohol as our, our standard for what is addictive, it is true that the vast majority of people never have a drugs or alcohol problem. But now with technology, more than 50% of the population today says that they overuse their smartphone. 
So we're, we're already at a radically different, this is a radically different scale. This is nowhere near, um, you know, what we know about addiction in the past. And so when we were building onward, we actually pulled together four of the leading, uh, researchers in the subject of tech, you know, technology addiction and technology overuse, uh, from Columbia, from Stanford and from UCLA to help us, um, you know, kind of build something that was, you know, medical grade let's say, but designed for the average person who, who might, uh, you know, not feel like they have an addiction, but maybe they just feel like, Oh, I use, you know, I look at porn when I, when I am at work where, uh, you know, I'm shopping now when I shouldn't be. Um, and so it's, it's designed to help people with a wide range of, um, intensities. Well, I, I'm totally with you on that, but I think it's important to have the distinction between the overuse and addiction because the addiction is actually, you know, a psychological, you know, it happens inside the brain. It's not a craving. It's not something that, uh, that you can control to the same extent. You have to go through a real, you know, detox experience in order to eliminate it. So I'm just going to challenge you. Actually, because detox is almost never the correct addiction treatment modality for the majority of the population. And that, by the way, is true for drugs and alcohol. And it's also true for technology. One of my favorite, um, if you, if you look at the research, and in fact, I started with that bias as well, but the, the data is really clear. Harm reduction is the most appropriate way of dealing with most people's, uh, addictive issues. And my favorite example of this in the tech sphere was that, you know, famously Kim Kardashian went on a, like, social media detox for a couple of weeks last year and, and made kind of a big deal about it. And then it came out that her assistant was actually reading her, her tweets over the course of that time period. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> and so I think, I think this is, this is emblematic of how so many people, you know, try to deal with this issue. It, it may not feel like as serious as an addiction that's ruining people's lives. And I, I totally get that. I don't want to equate them. But the solution that's needed to address it needs to be as good as one that would help people whose lives are broken, um, even if it's a small issue. Because otherwise, it just the Facebook algorithm is designed to actually use your willpower against you. It's, it's engineered to like test you all the time and figure out what actually will break your resolve to not look at stuff. So this is a different kind of um, context. And I think people need, uh, need to understand that. Yes, I'm totally with you on that. But even in the Kim Kardashian example you said there, so she was getting her fix in an analog manner from somebody else telling her, you know, what was being said. So right, right, right. she was actually, it wasn't the technology that was the trigger for her. It was that interaction that was the trigger yeah, for, for her. Sure. And that's the piece that I'm trying to separate out where it's the, you know, what piece is the need for social interaction? What is the, the piece of needing to be relevant versus, and, and just not even just, not just social media or even your smartphone in all areas of, you know, technology use, which are integrated into our entire lives now and everything from our smart homes to how we board a plane, everything, there's there's technology there. And so yeah. it's more about recognizing where the trigger is the actual technology or is it what the technology, the outcome the technology is delivering to you? Well, so I, separating can, out those two pieces. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure that they're actually separated, but you do highlight an important kind of point. Um, about it, which is we use the shorthand tech addiction to describe this or technology addiction to describe this like broad category. But as I frequently tell people, there actually is, there are very few people who are literally addicted to technology. 
the majority of people who have an overuse problem are are this way because the underlying thing they're doing, you know, so whether that's shopping, porn, gambling, video games, or social media and, and all the different forms, those things are actually, you know, triggering and reinforcing a behavior loop. Um, and the medium of distribution is your mobile phone. But it's not, it's not inherently technology that people are addicted to. And I think that's an important point to make. Exactly. And I, I think, you know, it's just something that it's so easy to point the finger at the technology when, and not take, take our own accountability into the equation, but also recognizing, you know, what is it that, what is it that, that's that thing that's being, you know, the outcome that we're getting from the technology that makes it create this behavior? Yeah, I think you're totally right. In fact, um, in the next, you know, in the next few days or so, I'm going to, I've written a piece on the subject of taking personal responsibility for the issue of people's tech addiction uh, or overuse. And I can't, you know, I can't stress this enough. Nobody put a gun to your head and told you to use Instagram. Nobody, but with very, very little exception, very few people have to do Instagram as a career. Now, those people have a different, you know, set of considerations, but the vast majority of the billion people, the two billion people who use Facebook are not using it as a career. It's a uh, crutch and a tool, um, you know, and something that they, that they enjoy and also feel ambivalent about. And that's one of the things that makes this even more complicated. Like we can say the right amount of total heroin that a person should consume is zero. But we can't have hard and fast rules uh, for technology because it's such an integral part of our lives. And it's so enmeshed uh, for us professionally and socially, you know, and one of my favorite things that comes up most often in my work is, um, you know, I'll always get in every talk that I give, every speech I give, every, you know, interaction I have with people, I'll always get someone who will ask the question, how much screen time is appropriate for my child? That is a really frequent question. And it's funny, A, because everybody's like, uh, you know, transferring their own anxiety under their children. Like their cell phone use is not a problem, but their children's cell phone use is a big problem, right? So I, I always think that's funny. I, you know, look at yourself, parents, you know, and what you do and what behaviors you model. Um, but also, uh, there is no answer to that question of how much screen time is appropriate. There's no one rule that will work for everyone. But the craving for that is so great that the um, Pediatric Association, the uh, American Society of Pediatricians, actually said one hour was their number. They were like one hour a day. How how you pull that number out of the air? I have no idea. But you know, any anybody will know that there's not one hard and fast rule for that, and this makes it really complicated. Absolutely, and I think the other piece to that is, as you, you mentioned before, sort of the ubiquitous nature of technology. I mean, I look at I have teenagers and. If I was to say you could only have one hour of screen time, I mean, they wouldn't be able to do their homework. They wouldn't be able to connect with their community, their peers. I mean, it's not like we live next door to their best friends. I mean, and, right. and my kids who are, you know, have spent half of their life as expats, half of their friends are on the other side of the globe. And so in order for them to make, maintain those connections and to play together, which is often online gaming where they're on Skype, right. they need to use technology. And so That's right. those guidelines just become totally irrelevant. And, and taking your example about your teens and kind of moving that, you know, expanding from that, 
So one of the things that many people who are not familiar with how to design for engagement say about the what should be the solution to, to tech overuse, the most common thing that people say is, well, you know, Facebook should just monitor how much time you spend. And if you're spending more than the, uh, you know, limit line that they think is acceptable, or if you're in the top 1% or whatever, they should just say, Hey, stop using Facebook or uh, Netflix instead of just auto playing the next video should stop and say, are you sure you want to watch this next video right now? And these really simplistic, uh, what we call speed bump interventions, they fail to take into account that the reason why the system is structured this way today um, is because it's almost impossible to design an interaction for people that will accommodate all of their cases. And the example that I give uh, for this usually is Waze. So if you've ever used Waze in the car, it will pop up a little thing that says, uh-oh, you can't use Waze while you're driving. And right below that, it has a little button. And the button says, I'm a passenger. And you learn as a user very quickly... Right. People do it all the time. People do this all the time. And they learn very quickly that if they press that button, they have access to the full app. Now, you can say, why is that button there? Does Waze not care that people are driving in a distracted way? And this gets to the like very core heart of the issue, which is their hands are tied. If they prevented you from using, prevented you from overriding that blocker, some percentage of the time, you are the passenger, Right. And for people who are really motivated to do the action, right, like watch another video, no amount of simple roadblocks, simple speed bumps are going to stop them from doing that thing. So it's, it's like uh, these overly simplistic answers, you know, just end up being, they just don't even make sense. Like, like w- how would you feel if Facebook told you you were using it too much and you should get off of it? I think, you know, if you're, if you're like your kids... Uh, you know, and they're far away from your friends, you would reject that. And Facebook has no way of knowing what the context is. Netflix doesn't know if you're home at sick with, homesick with the flu or you're ignoring your career. Like, it has no way of knowing that. So the only solution and the reason why we built Onward the way that we did, it has to be individuals have to set their own parameters. Individuals have to make their own decisions. And then the role of software is to um, help enforce those rules. I love it. It puts the, it, it puts the onus on the individual. And, and that's really a lot of what I'm teaching is really helping people understand that, you know, they have a choice mm-hmm. and, and you can shift it so that you have a more balanced relationship with technology, but you have to build an awareness of how you're engaging with it. And so yeah. to that extent, and, and to sort of get a little bit of a switch here, because I don't want to all be negative because there's a lot of really great stuff happening out there. I mean, in terms of being able to modify behaviors or to do, you know, there's a lot of, you know, when you're talking about gamification, there's a lot of, you know, social, socially motivated gamification or ways that we can really use these tools in a positive way. Can you give some examples of, of, you know, what you've seen in that space? Sure. I mean, you know, I think it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because, um, one of the, the double-edged swords about all new technologies or all new approaches to persuasion are that they can almost always be used for good or for bad. So, you know, if you think about films, you know, famously Lenny Riefenstahl, the Nazi propagandist used the early emerging medium of film to persuade people that that terrible, horrible ideology was something they should believe in. And, you know, we, we wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, in retrospect, 
we probably wouldn't give up the last 80 years of filmmaking in exchange for preventing those Nazi propaganda films. And in some extent, I know that that's a very like rough analogy, but in some, to some extent, this is a repeating pattern every time new technologies are introduced into society. So they, they're used for good or bad. They often become overwhelming to people. They, they change the way they think. And, you know, I certainly am of the generation where, you know, they said that TV was going to ruin our brains. Uh, and that turns out not to be true. Um, so there's a kind of, I mean, unless you're watching the Kardashians a lot, I guess. But fundamentally, there are lots of really positive and accretive ways that this engaging technology can be used, like particularly gamification. And, um, you know, one of the examples is we use gamification in Onward to help you stop, uh, you know, overusing the things that you don't want. Um, but also examples that other people may have experienced include um, their Apple Watch's health feature or their Fitbit, um, both of which make heavy use of gamification to encourage you uh, to, for example, get to your 10,000 steps or uh, sit up straight or whatever the case may be. And those are core principles from, you know, behavioral design uh, and from the gamification field that, um, you know, are, are used to do good. So it's, it's definitely like a mixed bag. I'm not going to say it's all terrible. What I am going to say, though, is Facebook is uncommonly good at getting people to spend more time than they would like or that they say they would like. The reason why they're that good at that is because they have algorithms and they have teams of data scientists who do nothing but build algorithms engineered to get you to use their product more. Every company would like to have that firepower. And so over time, I think the, the long-term trend here really is that, um, you know, we're going to see more and more and more, um, you know, engaging slash addictive technology in every aspect of our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you hear more and more about uh, the demand for behavioral scientists to be, you know, be hired by tech companies or developing yeah. things. I mean, I was right. at a conference, it was only a year ago, not even a full year ago called Hyper Wellbeing. And it was really looking at, you know, how can we create these motivating tools? And, you know, somebody asked from the stage, like, are there any behavioral scientists in the room? And I was the only person to raise my hand. And everyone came up to me afterwards and they're like, we need to work with you. Right, <laughs> it was just, right. but it, it, you know, his point was you need to be talking to behavioral scientists. If you're trying to modify, you know, negative behaviors, Behavior, right. you need to have someone on your team that understands the behavior science behind it. It's not just the engineering piece. For and sure. So, I mean, that, that was more on the positive side of, you know, looking at health and, you know, digital health. But even in, within the space of, I think Apple just hired this huge team of, of uh, behavioral scientists. And I'm sure they're not alone. It's just that they get a lot of publicity when they and make it yeah. a big move like that. Yeah. So just, I, th I think the important thing to, to think of, of this for is, uh, or the, the prism that I use when I think about it is, you know, behavioral science is definitely a hot, hot career path for people, gamification and, and the other aspects of behavioral engineering. And I, I think the difference between the, let's just call them do-gooders um, and the, you know, the folks working on uh, creating more technology addiction is that the latter group, and that's, you know, Facebook, Apple, Google, you know, Amazon, Microsoft, plus all the other companies trying to get your attention, they, their profits are literally tied to how much time they get from you looking at their stuff. That is the whole benchmark for, you know, their compensation models for most of many of those companies. More time they get, the more money they make. On the do-gooder side, 
the motivations are much less clear and the economic model is much less sustainable. And so in the long term, it's going to be difficult. It's going to become increasingly difficult for folks looking to do good to have access to the behavioral scientists and the technologies that they need, even as those become you know, sort of democratized. Because if it's anything like search engine technology or autonomous cars or anything like that, the biggest tech companies will gobble up everything and everybody they can get their hands on to maximize their advantage. I think that's the same in anything, though. But I, but I, sure. but I, I also want to sort of caution because I do think, you know, looking at Apple and Google in particular, they have gone hugely into digital health. And so mm-hmm. I don't think that all of that is a, their behavioral science needs are around addiction sure. uh, for the negative piece because sure. they're more, they want people to, you know, if they're going to create these digital health solutions, they need people actually using them and spending more time using them. And of course it's, you know, there's a profit side to it. I'm not saying that they're all a little angelic, but I, I do think that just putting, assuming that a behavioral science is coming into a tech, big tech company, that they're just going to be there to create addictive behaviors for nonsense things that are distractions. Yeah. I, I, and I think you're totally right. Like I said, you know, there's no, there's no clear cut like good versus evil. You know, um, the evil side of this is, is a little bit more you like, you know, it when you see it, but it's quite insidious and it, it sort of creeps up on people. You know, I think at the beginning of the, at the beginning of Facebook, you know, we viewed it as a tool for democratizing the world, for connecting with other people. It has enabled me to stay in touch with all these people that otherwise I probably would not if we were still, you know, writing emails or whatever, I probably wouldn't, um, and at least be part of their lives. I don't think we, we really understood or really grokked that that plus our lack of desire to pay for the product directly for its usage was going to result in an economic incentive that was so lopsided that pulled people, you know, in all the way to this one side. And so, you know, I, I do believe that primarily we need to give individuals the power to make their own choices and enforce their own limits. That's how we built onward. Um, but I don't think that the technology companies are evil. And I've been on a number of like, you know, I, I, I talk to the media pretty frequently, you know, I was in on 60 minutes and a bunch of other stuff, 2020. And the, the framing of those stories is like the tech industry is hijacking your brain. They're trying to like, you know, manipulate you and change your behavior. And, you know, I know everybody wants to paint this as black and white, but that's not what they're doing. That is literally not what they're doing. And it's also not their stated objective. So there are, but there are deeply enmeshed incentives and structural issues that will make it difficult for them to make changes on their own because they'll have to give up a lot of money in order to be able to do that. Um, but just think about what would happen if Apple blocked its own developers, its own software developers usage of their products. Like it would be, you know, it, this would be a really big kind of crisis for them. And, you know, so anyway, the, the bottom line is, you know, the bottom line is we all need to set our own limits and we need to enforce them. And, you know, let's, we can't expect the tech industry to, uh, to solve our problems for us, the big tech giants. Yeah, it's, it's taking ownership. And, and I think that, you know, you brought up some great points about sort of the demonization and sort of it's not black and white. So, you know, you really have to become an educated consumer and an, and an educated doer in, in really analyzing our own behavior. With that That's thought, right. we're going to take a quick break for a visit from our sponsor and we'll be right back. 
with more of Gabe Zickerman. This episode of The Evolving Digital Self is sponsored by Good Idea. Good Idea is the Swedish sugar buster. It's a scientifically proven dietary supplement designed to go perfectly with any meal. The big deal is that Good Idea, the Swedish sugar buster, contains a blend of five amino acids and a mineral in sparkling water that helps those with normal blood sugar levels handle the sugar spike following a meal. And it works with any meal containing fast carbs and or sugar. That's why Good Idea, the Swedish sugar buster, might well be your best lunch date ever. And the one you can have every day. Available now on Amazon.com. For more information, go to GoodIdeaDrinks.com. And we're back with Gabe Zickerman, author and CEO of Onward, an anti-tech addiction startup. We've been having so much fun riffing back and forth. We've talked about the good and the evil and the fact that there really is no black and white in this whole, in the, you know, the way that we perceive the tech company's intentions. I would love to switch a little bit over to the personal side and really understand, you know, how you see your career has changed through uh, use of technology, the fast pace of change in technology and how that's integrated into your work and life. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I was a nerd from very young age and my parents, uh, kind of, I guess, sensing this, um, you know, bought me my first computer at the age of eight and it was a VIC 20. And, uh, you know, I learned my first lesson about technology three weeks later when the Commodore 64 came out for the same price that my parents had paid for the VIC 23 weeks earlier, uh, but at more than 2x the capabilities, power and so on. So technology has been like an intimate part of my, you know, my life since I was a kid. And I was a hacker and a programmer and, you know, wanted to pursue a career in technology, um, you know, for as long as I can remember and I think along the way in my, in my own personal life, I think I've realized that um, many of the same issues that my uh, users at Onward are facing are issues that I've faced at one time or another. They're not foreign to me. You know, sitting there, just like refreshing Instagram, um, you know, and realizing like, why am I even looking at this? Or, um, you know, in my life more, you know, even more intensely is like uh, launching dating apps uh, well beyond the point of being you know, horny in any way and swiping and swiping. And, you know, I think this is a sort of, you know, I think this, this personal aspect of this experience for me and, and the way they use technology definitely, you know, informed my, um, my viewpoint about what needs to happen. And the only other kind of like interesting sort of anecdote I would tell you about that is games were my, really my first, kind of passion from a tech standpoint. So what I did with that VIC-20 uh, from the very earliest days, I, I started writing games in it and playing them and writing them. And um, there's this moment that I, I talk about sometimes. In college, I was uh, in university and this one night, my roommate decided to throw a rager of a party, like a rager. You know, everybody was over. There's lots of booze. And I spent that whole night sitting in the living room, so everyone was around me, playing this one video game called Civilization. And I remember, you know, I'm a pretty social person, so for me, skipping out on a party like that would be really odd. And and I just remember being like, I gotta play one more turn, I've gotta play one more turn, I gotta play one more turn. 
And, you know, next thing I knew the party had come and gone. Uh, it was early morning, you know, and I, I played through the night and funnily enough, I, I think I turned that obsessive experience into really positive stuff. I went to work in the video game industry. Um, you know, I successfully helped start and then sell a games platform company. Um, I've been very involved in the evolution of the games business towards um, more casual games and more accessible games. Um, and then, of course, gamification is an outgrowth of that um, understanding, seeing that the world could be more gameful and uh, more game-like, and that would help people overall and help our society overall. And then now I'm like the... I'm the, to some people, a turncoat and to other people, I guess, uh, a spokesperson for this new, um, you know, this sort of new understanding. And, you know, I am partially responsible. Like in my, my own way, I've been responsible for, you know, everything that happens today as it relates to people, you know, keeping their heads in their phones and, and not connecting with each other. I, I bear some responsibility for that. So perhaps this is my penance. <laughs> The penance piece, I don't know if we should go that far, but, but, uh, I do think that, you know, your perspective is you've lived it. And so who better to represent it and understand the consequences than someone who's lived that experience? It's not just that you've designed games and then you send them off. And I mean, the gamification piece is something that's so integrated, you know, the way we're talking about it here, where it's more in sort of the actual, you know, in, in software and in, you know, in actual games, but the whole gamification concept is in everything from, you know, the, the bonus cards, the club cards you get from stores and whatever, where they're tracking things and giving you bonuses for extra purchases and things like that. And it, it's really extended far beyond the game space or the oh, game sure. space. So I think that it's important to recognize that it's it's not just for video gamers, that the whole concept is much bigger. Of course. And you know what's funny about that is games have some unique properties. The reasons why they're so compelling have a, a, a lot to do with how they're designed and how the designers of games think about what should happen in a particular interaction. So that was when I, when I wrote my first book about gamification, game-based marketing, uh, in 2009, 2010. So it's been a while now. One of the things that I was trying to do was connect the dots for people not in the game space to look at how games work and what they do to understand why they were so compelling. Why were people willing to do like what, what I was willing to do and sit down all night long and just play a video game, you know, over and over again? And to be clear, to do that without getting compensation, right? Because I'm not getting paid for playing a video game. I'm paying to play a video game. Uh, so what causes people to, to behave that way and, and realizing that there were a series of, um, you know, mechanics underneath that that drove that kind of engagement. So the whole thing in this last decade has been about bringing the game thing, uh, the game sauce or the game magic to other aspects of our society and other parts of our economy. And, you know, to be clear, other parts of the economy are pretty good at driving addiction on their own. The food industry, for example, you know, employs thousands of food engineers doing R&D all day, you know, to make things more craveable and more delicious and, you know, make you want that weird sandwich, like, or that taco made with Dorito shells. You know, these are products of an, an economy uh, that is designed to try to foster as much addiction as possible. 
And so that is part of the reason why I've started to describe, you know, what we are in as an addiction economy, because it seems very clear to me that every company would like for you to do their thing or buy their product or use their service to the exclusion of everything else in the world if they could. If Taco Bell could convince you to, to eat four meals a day at Taco Bell, they would love to do that and they will do anything they can to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's interesting, you know, you talk about that crossover piece of food or there's uh, so many other places where they're really, they're struggling for your attention. They just, you know, they want your 100% undivided attention and that, that dedication that it's like, that's the only thing that I want to do. Or, you know, and you put everything else to, to the side. On another note of sort of the way that, that we can sort of integrate you know, IRL in real life with mm. these gaming pieces. I just recently did an interview with Bill Springer, who's actually an old friend of mine, but he has this great thing called Swizzle Media and writes for sort of all the, you know, about luxury yachts and whatever. But part of his passion for uh, technology really came from doing one of these amazing race type things. Oh. Is, but this was back in the day when they had to, you know, do dial up to upload their videos that they made during the day. and. But I think that, you know, being able to create these games where we're integrating real life with the, you know, the online life and maybe creating more of a serious games type environment where people get more engaged with real life, but using technology. Have you seen any interesting examples of that? Oh, oh there are so many, uh, you know, really fun and interesting examples of this crossover bet between the real world and tech. Um, one of the ones I love to talk about all the time was... Uh, at the Sochi Olympics, the Olympic Committee wanted to do a, a health and fitness promo of some kind uh, because Russia has major, major um, health problems. Um, the Russian, the average life expectancy of a Russian man is is down to 57 years. It's really uh, slid backwards. So there's a big national push to get people more healthy and and to engage in wellness. And so they decided, um, you know, around the Sochi Olympics to deploy a um, ticket vending machine in the Moscow Metro in the subway, deploy a ticket vending machine that uh, would give you free subway tickets if you did 10 squats in front of it. And it really used like, it used like a, a Microsoft connect type technology inside this you know ticket vending machine. So it was watching you and seeing you go up and down and up and down and do the squats. And uh, you know, at the end of the 10 squats, you'd get a you know free ticket for the subway. And when I talk about this example to people, uh, they often, you know, the, the first reaction, and by the way, this is the reaction they should have. The first reaction is, well, that's not a practical way to give everyone tickets. You know, like imagine the lines at the subway entrance if everyone had to squat for their tickets. <laughs> but it does highlight, I think, the fact that um, there are so many ways to make the real world more fun and engaging by bringing game elements into it, into the physical space, and that we can build and design experiences that are purely for fun, that also teach you something, or that also help you establish a new behavior. So, you know, we, we tend to think of it as being the reverse, like you first think about the, the behavior you're trying to draw, the outcomes you're trying to draw, and then deploy fun in service of that. But actually, sometimes the, the most interesting examples, especially IRL, are the reverse. Absolutely. I love that example. I'm just, you know, I've, I've got a visual in my head. I don't think it's going to go away for the rest of the day. 
You know, it's almost like, you know, you got to do that. What's that Russian dance where you kick out your feet when you go? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it's called, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, it's, you know, it's a funny visual in my head. Just thought I'd share that with you. (laughs) You know what? This has been so much fun. And, you know, I could keep on talking for ages and I would love to have you back in a year and, and really hear how, you know, how Onward's going and see what's happening there. But in the meantime, I want to make sure that our listeners can find you, find your work and, and check out this app. Can you tell us a little bit more about that so make sure they, they can do that? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of different ways that you can um, get involved and find out more. So uh, Onward, um, my startup, which is dedicated to providing solutions, affordable solutions to people that uh, will help them break their technology addictions and, and reduce their ovaries, um, is at Onward, O-N-W-A-R-D dot org. And if you go to Onward.org, you'll find a lot of information about the issue of technology overuse, including a scientifically validated uh, assessment, a quiz, that you can basically take that has you know seven questions on it. It only takes a couple of minutes. And at the end, you'll get a score that gives you some indication of, you know, based on what you've said, how likely is it that you have a serious, medium, or mild issue or no issue with your use of technology. Um, so I, I highly encourage people to visit onboard.org, take the assessment. Um, and you can, if you decide that it's it's worthwhile to you, you can download onward totally free uh, from the website, uh, try it out, see if it helps you, you know, set and enforce your limits. And if you're interested in, in following me and reading about my work, I, I tweet and write a fair amount about the subject of you know technology and society and you know how to you know how to reduce your technology overuse very specifically. Um, so and I can be found on all social media platforms at at G Z I C H E R M. Great. And we will make sure that all of that is in the show notes. So if you're driving, please don't try to write that down. Make sure you check it later and we'll be happy to share. It'll both be available on the iTunes and on the show notes on the website, twobalanceyou.com. It has been such a joy having you today with us, Gabe. And um, thank you for joining us, folks out there. We hope you'll come back and, and listen to more Evolving Digital Self. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and take some time to review and share. So thank you so much for joining us, Gabe. And until next time, bye-bye for now. Thank you for joining us for The Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.